Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. If you're interested in joining our student board, please visit spoonfulofsugar.org apply for more information and to submit your application to be considered for a position on the student board. We are accepting applications until December 15th, so there's only one month left and that'll sneak up on you quickly, so don't forget to check that out if you're interested. Now, let me introduce you to our episode for the week. It's actually a two-part episode um, called Pharmacology of Mood Disorders, hosted by Bilal Rana. If you recall, a few weeks ago, Bilal hosted an episode on mood disorders, how they present, um, how to identify them, and in this week's two-part series, he will be exploring the pharmacology of mood disorders. So what are the drugs that we use to treat mood disorders, and how do they actually work? So this is definitely a long one. Um, It's a very dense topic, but I think he's done a great job. So hope you enjoy. Hello, future doctors. You're tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, the podcast made for med students by med students, where we break down complex medical topics into bite-sized pieces for your success. I'm your host, Bilal Rana, an OMS3 at Western U, and today we're picking up on our last episode on mood disorders to talk about relevant pharmacology. I'll be getting granular here, so strap yourself in, and let's begin. Before we begin, quick outline, we're going to be talking about SSRIs, SNRIs, TCAs, atypical antidepressants, and MAO inhibitors. We won't be talking about mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. We're going to save those for another episode, given the density of this one. All right, let us begin with the almighty SSRIs. First off, what does it stand for? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So we know we're going to be working with serotonin. Just keep that in the back of your head. Before we talk more about serotonin, let's talk about where it comes from. So which amino acid is serotonin derived from? It is derived from tryptophan. An easy way to remember this is to remember serotonin's alternative name, 5-HT, also known as 5-hydroxytryptamine. Notice it has the trypt in its name, so tryptamine, tryptophan. Sometimes serotonin is also more generally referred to as a monoamine. Notice again in the name 5-hydroxytryptamine, monoamine. These names are important because sometimes the examiners won't just tell you serotonin. They may say 5-HT, they might say 5-hydroxytryptamine, they might be referring to just monoamine, so keep all those names straight. Okay, and where in the body is serotonin synthesized? So two places. Let's start with the brain. So in the brain, it is synthesized in a structure known as the raffi nucleus. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Probably raffi nucleus. And in the gut, yes, in the gut, they are synthesized by enterochromaffin cells, specifically in the intestine. In fact, about 90 to 95% of serotonin is actually secreted in the gut. That might be a little hard to remember, but if you remember from your in-class lectures or your board studies, you probably learned about something called serotonin syndrome. We'll cover that more in detail later in this episode, but one of the symptoms is diarrhea, and serotonin is known to enhance gut motility, so that can kind of help tie together what serotonin does, and it correlates very strongly to where you see it being synthesized. Okay, now let's talk about some of the names. We have citalopram, escitalopram, 
fluoxetine, paroxetine, fluvoxamine, and sertraline. Now, board examiners love making questions needlessly difficult. And with psych questions, the idea here is that the questions are relatively easier, so they have to make up for the complexity somehow. At least that's my theory. Very often, you won't be given the term SSRI on a multiple choice, and instead will actually need to recall the name of the drug. So for your SSRIs, you have your PRAMs, your Zetines, and then you also have sertraline and fluvoxamine. Fluvoxamine is a bit lower yield, so I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see it too often. What I do want to point out is fluoxetine versus duloxetine. We'll talk about this later. They often get confused. And we'll also talk about flufenazine in another episode that also tends to get confused with fluoxetine. I just want you to make sure that they're really not the same thing. Now, SSRIs treat a variety of conditions, including major depressive disorder, OCD, PTSD, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, bulimia, binge eating, social phobias, hoarding, and so on and so forth. This is not a list that you need to memorize. All you need to do is appreciate that psych drugs, specifically SSRIs, they are highly versatile and that they're not exclusive to depression. Okay, question. How long does it take for SSRIs to start working? Yeah, about one to two months. They're not going to work right away. Sometimes patients will come in two, three weeks down the road. They'll say, doctor, medications aren't working. I still feel the symptoms. Therefore, it's going to be really important to counsel patients that it's going to take more time for the medications to start working. Okay, now SSRIs are known to have a pretty wide side effect profile. Can you think of some side effects? Okay, so you got things like weight gain, insomnia, and orgasmia, aka like se sexual dysfunction. There are also a few other very high yield side effects I want to talk about. So the first one is that SSRIs are known to cause an increase in suicidal ideation. It's pretty ironic. You're often giving these to folks who are depressed. Uh, folks with depression often have suicidal ideation, and yet these medications are known to cause an increase in suicidal ideation. There is a theory behind that. I don't think it's very high yield for the purposes of board examinations. It's something called the energizing phenomenon. The idea behind this is that SSRIs increase the amount of energy people have, and with that comes an increased propensity to act on suicidal ideation. Now, what is the relationship between SSRIs and bipolar disorder? Here's the relationship. SSRIs are not to be prescribed to people who have an underlying bipolar disorder. This means that when you're taking a detailed history and you're considering prescribing an SSRI to somebody, you want to make sure that they do not have any of the DIGFAST symptoms. Otherwise, you will precipitate mania in those patients. One more thing I want to talk about. A lot of these side effects happen within the first month of using these medications, which can explain the low compliance with these medications, which also explains why you need to start on a low dose. And this also explains one more high-yield fact, that when you're discontinuing SSRIs, you need to taper them down over a one-month period. What happens if you abruptly discontinue SSRIs? Flu-like symptoms. So be very careful about this. If you're using SSRIs, you got to discontinue them over a period of time. 
and that period of time is usually about a month long. Okay, that was a handful. Now let's move on to SNRIs, which are another handful. What does SNRI stand for? Serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It does not mean selective norepinephrine re reuptake inhibitor. I, I'm, I make that mistake every now and then, but I have to remind myself, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Now, recall from our discussion about SSRIs, we talked about the origins of serotonin, namely that it comes from tryptophan. What about norepinephrine? Which amino acid is norepinephrine derived from? It is derived from tyrosine. Let's talk a little bit about the pathway. So tyrosine will get converted to L-DOPA, which gets converted to dopamine, and then norepinephrine, and then epinephrine. Let's talk about the steps individually, one by one, about the different enzymes. And let's also cover the cofactors. Each of these steps have a cofactor, so we're going to talk about those as well. All right, step one, tyrosine to L-DOPA. What enzyme catalyzes this reaction and with what cofactor? So the enzyme is tyrosine hydroxylase, and the cofactor is tetrahydrobiopterin, also written as BH4. Moving along to step two, we got L-DOPA converting to dopamine. Uh, which enzymes and cofactors are required here? So we have DOPA decarboxylase, as well as vitamin B6. What's the other name for vitamin B6? Pyridoxine. Good. All right, in step three, we're going to convert dopamine into norepinephrine. Now, how does this occur? Which enzyme and cofactor? So we have dopamine beta-hydroxylase alongside vitamin C. And vitamin C is also known as ascorbic acid. Awesome. And we know norepinephrine also gets converted to epinephrine. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But for now, let's just focus on the tyrosine, L-DOPA, dopamine, and norepinephrine. Uh, the mnemonic I use, it's honestly not really a mnemonic, TLDN. It's kind of like TLDR, but instead of TLDR, it's TLDN, tyrosine, L-DOPA, dopamine, norepinephrine. I know it's horrible, but you know it, it works. So if it works for you, great, cool. But anywho, since we're talking about norepinephrine, let's also talk about epinephrine, you know, just to round things off. So norepinephrine gets converted to epinephrine with which enzyme and what cofactor? Yeah, the one with the big names. So we have phenylethanolamine N-methyltransferase, also known as PNMT, and then your cofactor is S-adenosylmethionine, also known as SAM, or just SAM. And right now I'm going to plant a seed, and we're going to revisit this later. Focus on the word dopamine. Dopamine. Remember we were talking about monoamines? Dopamine is also a monoamine, and so is norepinephrine, although the word amine isn't directly in there. You're going to want to know this. Okay, and where is norepinephrine synthesized? The adrenal medulla, as well as postganglionic neurons of the sympathetic nervous system, the adrenal medulla is the more important one here. Now, names, again, names are really important here. The names of the two SNRIs, we have 
venlafaxine, and duloxetine. Now, recall from the previous episode, duloxetine is not to be confused with fluoxetine. Okay, the other thing, do kind of reminds me of the number two in Spanish, dos. So, dos is two, so we know that it's second line instead of first line, and that also helps us remember that you're blocking two neurotransmitters instead of one. So instead of just working on serotonin, we're working on serotonin and norepinephrine. Compared to SSRIs, SNRIs treatment profile is a bit more narrow, but it is pretty high yield. So in addition to depression, there are two other conditions that SNRIs treat. Do you know what those are? Right, so we got neuropathy and fibromyalgia. Now, neuropathy can be described as Weakness, numbness, pain, usually in the peripheral extremities, usually associated with a past medical history of diabetes. And then fibromyalgia, this one's interesting. Fibromyalgia is described as a chronic widespread pain. It can cause problems with sleep, physical exhaustion, cognitive difficulties. Um, Not quite a diagnosis of exclusion. Usually what you're going to find are multiple tender points throughout the body. And unlike neuropathy, which is more related to nerve pain, This kind of pain is mostly relegated to the muscles or muscle tendon junctions. Now, the side effect profile of SNRIs is a bit more mild, but there is one in particular that is important as well as high yield for the purposes of board examinations. Do you know which one I'm referring to? So that would be hypertension, and that's because serotonin is no longer the only one hanging around at the postsynaptic neurotransmitter, you also have norepinephrine, and and that's going to go onto a receptor. Do you know which receptor? The alpha-1 receptor. So it goes to the alpha-1 receptor, and that's going to increase your blood pressure, hence the hypertension. Very high yield. All right, two classes of drugs down. Now we move on to TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants. What is the mechanism of action of TCAs? So they are also SNRIs. They act as serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors. But here is where it gets confusing because they have a lot of other effects as well, namely anticholinergic, antihistaminic, and antiadrenergic effects. Okay, on the surface, when you hear anticholinergic, antihistaminic, antiadrenergic, it just sounds like a buzzword. There's a lot to it, and... This can often get missed on exams, so let's kind of break it down. So we have anticholinergic effects. The easy way to remember this is that dumbbells mnemonic and then just the literal opposite of it. So let's talk about dumbbells. So we got diarrhea, urination, meiosis, bradycardia, emesis, lacrimation, lethargy, and salivation. Now imagine the opposite. And that's anticholinergic. So instead of diarrhea, you got constipation. Instead of urination, you got urinary retention. Instead of meiosis, mydrasis, which is dilated pupils. Instead of bradycardia, tachycardia, so on and so forth, dry skin, dry mouth, whatever. You you know the deal. And then antihistaminic can be a number of things. The big one you want to know, sedation. And it's not very clear on board exams, but when they say antihistamine side effects... They are typically referring to first generation, which crosses the blood-brain barrier, therefore causes sedation. They're usually not referring to the second generation, and that's because the second generation antihistamines don't really have side effects that we're worried about. And then finally, we have the antiadrenergic effects. 
This one honestly does not make sense. You have a TCA that is acting as an SNRI, and despite that, it is anti-adrenergic. I don't know. You tell me. This does seem to be a load of barnacles, but these load of barnacles are going to get you points on the exam. Okay, now moving on to the names. So with SSRIs and SNRIs, I've been giving the names to you. So now I'm going to ask you, what are some names of the TCAs? All right, so we have amitriptyline, imipramine, clomipramine, as well as nortriptyline and disipramine. So I notice how I kind of separated the first three from the next two. And sure enough, there is a reason for that. The first three are tertiary TCAs and the second, or sorry, the latter are secondary TCAs. But why do we care whether something is a tertiary TCA or a secondary TCA? We care because the secondary TCAs are associated with less anticholinergic effects. Meaning, let's say you want to prevent somebody from having a dry skin, dry mouth, or having their heart racing. It might be safer to use, let's say, nortriptyline instead of amitriptyline. So the nomenclature for these drugs, a bit confusing. My mnemonic isn't exactly the greatest, but first of all, let's divide these by the fact that they have triptyline and pramine in its name. Let's start with the triptylines. We have amitriptyline and nortriptyline. Amitriptyline being tertiary and nortriptyline being secondary. The way I like to remember this is that instead of calling it amitriptyline, I call it amitriptyline, and amy has three letters in its name. And then you have nortriptyline, which instead I like to call no-triptyline, and the word no has two letters. And so Amy, triptyline, three letters, tertiary, no triptyline, two letters, secondary. So those are the triptylines. Now let's move on to the pramines. This mnemonic is even worse than the first one. So the way I remember this is that we have imipramine, clomipramine, and then we have decipramine. The difference is mipramine versus cipramine. The letter M comes before S. And so... Because when we're talking about tricyclic antidepressants, the word tri reminds me of tertiary, at least at least that's what it does for me. And so tertiary gets the priority here. The letter M gets the priority in the alphabet. So yeah, you, you see what I did there? And then cipramine, secondary priority. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad, I know. Now, what do TCAs treat? Okay, depression, yes. We can also treat neuropathy with TCAs, as well as fibromyalgia. Remember that these act just like SNRIs, so this should make sense. But we also talked about the anticholinergic properties of TCAs. Yes, we can see that as a side effect, or we can use this as a way to treat off-label conditions, such as enuresis, also known as urinary incontinence. So remember the dumbbells mnemonic, the U stands for urination. So if we have anticholinergic, we do the opposite, urinary retention. That could be a desirable side effect. And there is also one TCA that is known for treating obsessive compulsive disorder. We'll talk about that really soon. Now, just a few seconds ago, I was talking about the anticholinergic properties, one of them being urinary retention. There is one TCA in particular that is known to be efficacious 
for the treatment of aneurysis. Do you know which one that is? That would be imipramine. We also talked about the TCA's ability to work as antihistamines, but sometimes the sedative side effects are something we're trying to avoid. There is one TCA that is known for having the least antihistaminic effects. Do you know which one that is? So that would be disipramine, particularly safe in the elderly. And do you know which one has the most antihistaminic effects? It's actually one that I did not talk about. The drug's name is doxepin. The reason I didn't mention it is because I've honestly never seen it in board exams in my prep. I doubt you will, but if you do, hey, now you know. Doxepin, most antihistaminic TCA. So we talked in depth about some of the side effects already, some of the anticholinergic antihistaminic side effects. But what about the anti-adrenergic effects? What would that do? So what you want to look out for is orthostatic hypotension. Again, this is very confusing. Even though TCAs pharmacologically act like SNRIs, they also don't just because of the anti-adrenergic effects. It's pretty confusing, but it's just something that you got to know. You also have your weight gain, insomnia, and orgasmia, just like your SSRIs, but there are three other really high-yield side effects associated with TCAs, and the reason why we don't use them as often as SSRIs. They're known by the three Cs. Do you know what those are? So we have cardiotoxicity, convulsions, and coma. All three of them are believed to be due to the same mechanism. Do you know what mechanism causes these side effects? The inactivation of fast sodium channels. So let's break this down. The first one is cardiotoxicity. We know we need sodium for contractile function. So if we inactivate it, you could imagine we'd run into some trouble. Importantly, and this is the really high yield point because it tests your knowledge of cardiology, what would you expect to see on the EKG? Right, so you would have your QT prolongation resulting in a wide QRS causing TDP, also known as torsade de pointe. You don't get bonus points for pronunciation. Mine isn't even that great. All right, French terminology aside, let's talk about convulsions, aka seizures. When we think of seizures, we really should be thinking of electrolyte disturbances. And you can imagine when we're inactivating fast sodium channels, it's going to cause exactly that. Then lastly, we have the coma. This is likely due to the arrhythmia. Don't need to know all the details. Just know that this is a side effect. And with that, we are finally blessed to move on to atypical antidepressants. Now, quick note, when I say atypicals, I am referring to the drug, not the condition. These medications do not treat atypical depression. They just act differently, hence why they are called atypical antidepressants. And despite the fact that these are not the mainstream SSRIs, TCAs, it's their unique treatment profile and or side effects that make them very good for the real world, as well as very good for board questions. So pay close attention. And with that, we are moving to what is one of the best drugs on this entire list, bupropion. Now, what is the mechanism of action for bupropion? So bupropion is an NDRI, 
also known as norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor. Okay, now do we care to know anything else about the mechanism of action? I'll answer that for you. No, we don't. So we're going to move on to the treatment. Now, bupropion is known for treating three things that are actually unique to bupropion in addition to depression. Do you know what three things I'm referring to? So we have smoking cessation, weight loss, and there is no sexual dysfunction. We talked earlier about how the SSRIs and TCAs, they can cause anorgasmia. That's not an issue with bupropion, making it a really good drug for patients. But of course, every rose has its thorn. What is the really important side effect pertaining to bupropion? It lowers the seizure threshold. So we need to be really cautious in folks who either have a history of epilepsy or, especially important when we're talking about depression, folks with eating disorders such as bulimia. So eating disorders and depression overlap a lot, which is why it's good to know this. But it can be kind of hard to distinguish on a test because they may not make obvious this past medical history. So here's a test-taking pearl. They might hide the eating disorder with lab values. So one type of lab value that you might see would be, or rather multiple, you would expect to see hypokalemia, hypochloremia, and elevated bicarbonate. And try, what they're trying to get at here is that people with bulimia often have binging and purging, and that purging includes vomiting. And what that does is it causes a contraction alkalosis in addition to your hypokalemia and hypochloremia. So these are some lab values that you can look out for if they're not being explicit with the uh, past medical history of an eating disorder. All right, now that we have NDRIs aside, let's move on to our actual atypicals. We'll start with trazodone. What's the mechanism of action for trazodone? So it's primarily 5-HD2 antagonism. That's the main one. That's the main one you want to know. The other thing that it can do is that it has antihistamine and antiadrenergic effects. For test-taking purposes, they're not as concerned with you knowing the antiadrenergic effects as they are the antihistamine. And that'll become important when we talk about the side effect profile for trazodone. So Speaking of side effects, what are the two main side effects for trazodone? So you have priapism and sedation. So the priapism is essentially a painful erection that won't go away. Some people like to remember this with a mnemonic trazabone. Perhaps you've heard of this before. And then sedation uh, this one's particularly strong relative to other antidepressants. I know several of the antidepressants we've talked about already have sedation as a side effect, but this one is particularly strong. So this one is often used in, in clinic um, and in the inpatient units as a sleep aid. One of the main reasons why I'm hammering this point that trazodone can be used as a sleep aid is because a common trend that we see in psych drugs is that they have varying side effect profiles which make them good for varying conditions that it may be favorable for. For example, we talked about imipramine, which is great action against enuresis as it promotes urinary retention better than some of the other drugs within the same class, as well as clomipramine, which is ideal for folks who are having OCD-like uh, symptoms. And so despite imipramine and clomipramine, for example, being TCAs, 
they are both used in different conditions, and that's something important to note. Now moving right along to mirtazapine, what is the mechanism of action here? Primarily 5-HT2 and 5-HT3 antagonism. In addition, and this one is particularly interesting, mirtazapine can also have selective alpha-2 antagonism. And what this does is this actually increases the release of serotonin and norepinephrine, which in our case, the serotonin especially, is particularly favorable. And it also has some antihistamine effects. Now what about the side effect profile? What are the two main side effects you want to know about mirtazapine? So we have weight gain and again, sedation. So the weight gain is the big one for mirtazapine. So this would be beneficial in patients whose appetite is severely decreased such that they're losing too much weight. Mirtazapine would be great to stimulate that appetite. And the sedation because of those antihistamine effects. The way I like to remember this is that we have trazodone and mirtazapine. They both have sedative side effects. So if you kind of pronounce it like trazodone and mirtazapine, it has that ZZZ sound. And when I think ZZZ, I think sleep. So... That's how I remember that trazodone and mirtazapine both have sedative side effects. All right, now moving right along to monoamine oxidase inhibitors, aka MAOs. Now recall from our discussion of SSRIs, I called serotonin a monoamine. So you can see where this is relevant. If we have an inhibitor of monoamine oxidase, which is known to break down monoamines like serotonin, then that would mean we would have an increase in serotonin. Go figure. Now, what are monoamine oxidase inhibitors primarily used to treat? Primarily atypical depression. Not to be confused with atypical antidepressants. Again, they're atypical because of their mechanism of, mechanisms of action, side effect profile. These MAOs are designed to treat atypical depression. Now, kind of, you got to recall for this from the first episode, but what are the... Uh, symptoms of atypical depression. So you have hyperphagia, hypersomnia, mood reactivity, leaden paralysis, and sensitivity to rejection. The goal isn't to overwhelm you with all the details of what these mean. If you want more details, I talk about it a little bit in our first episode. Uh, so for now, we're just going to focus on the pharmacology. Now to understand how MAO inhibitors work, we're going to have to use our imaginary whiteboard. So kind of picture it for a second. Recall we have noradrenergic, dopaminergic, and serotonergic neurons. So what the neurotransmitters will do is that they will move from pre to post synaptic clefts, and they will act upon their respective receptors. After this, they will undergo reuptaking back into the presynaptic neuron. And as we know, this reuptake can be inhibited by drugs such as SNRIs. It's in the name, right? Serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, right? Okay, but now let's move on to the next step. Once in the presynaptic neuron, these neurotransmitters, aka norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, are broken down into metabolites via MAO, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Again, remember, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, all monoamines. And what this does is it lowers the amount of neurotransmitters available. So now when we put MAO inhibitors into the mix, we are inhibiting this breakdown. 
and thus by inhibiting the breakdown, we increase the available neurotransmitters. It's kind of like the same end result as an SNRI, but the pharmacokinetics are completely different, and that's high yield for the purposes of board examinations. Now, a real quick tangent to difference between pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. The former is concerned with absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion, whereas pharmacodynamics is the response to the drug, specifically the body's response to the drug. Uh, you can break it down by the name pharmacokinetics. Kind of sounds like kinematics, the study of motion. And anything pertaining to absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion has entirely to do with the structure and motion that occurs at a biophysical level. You don't need to know all the details. Just know pharmacokinetics, kinematics, ADME. And that's a topic you're going to need to know for step one. I figured I'd just mention it here. Anywho, tangent aside, the TLDR is that MAO inhibitors inhibit the breakdown of monoamines. Again, what are those monoamines? Norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. And they do this where? Presynaptically or postsynaptically? Presynaptically. And what this does is it increases the availability of these neurotransmitters. Now, bonus question, is this process reversible or irreversible? Irreversible. I know it sounds small, but sometimes they try to, they have like two multiple choice questions um, or two multiple choice answer choices rather, and then one of them says reversible, the other says irreversible. So when we're thinking about MAO inhibitors, think irreversible. And the way I like to remember that, even though this doesn't really sound very helpful, um, MAO inhibitors, uh, sometimes I just call them MAO eyes, and the I stands for irreversible. Now, MAO inhibitors can be broken down into non-selective and selective. Let's first talk about non-selective. Can you tell me the three names of the non-selective MAO inhibitors? So we have isocarboxazid, tranalcipramine, and phenelzine. Not to be confused with phenylephrine, that's a nasal decongestant and that acts on alpha-1 receptors, a bit different. Now, there are two types of MAO enzymes. There's the MAO-A and the MAO-B, uh, the non-selective ones. Which ones do they interact with? So they interact with both, being that they're non-selective, they're not picky, so they're going to take both sides. And again, this is going to increase the availability of norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin because it's acting on both of the enzymes. The next class is the selective one. Um, these are more specific to a certain neurotransmitter. First off, what are the names of the selective MAO inhibitors? So we have selegiline and resagiline, or selegiline and resagiline, I don't know how you pronounce it. And which MAO enzyme does it inhibit? Or does it inhibit both? So it only inhibits MAO B, only the second one. So there's two, there's the A and the B form, it only inhibits the B. And why is that important? It is important because when we think about monoamines, we're thinking norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. I know I've said this a bunch, I'm just trying to hammer it home. But with MAO-B, it only increases the availability of dopamine. And this is particularly important in the setting of treating a certain neurological condition. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Parkinson's, right. 
Now, I'm not going to go into more detail here. If you want to learn more about Parkinson's, you can see Rachel Garza's episode on Parkinson's pharmacology. She's a fellow Western student, so go ahead and take a look at that episode. It's really great. Now, as far as selegiline and resigiline, or again, selegiline, resigiline, however you pronounce it, the way I try to remember it is that I pronounce it selegiline and resigiline. And what that helps me remember is that with Parkinson's patients, for example, they're, they're having a hard time keeping, uh, keeping themselves straight, right? Because they're so off balance. And the goal of selegiline and resigiline is to kind of keep that line straight, to keep that Parkinson's straight. And as far as remembering which enzyme it inhibits, this one's a bit of a silly mnemonic. So it's the MAO-B enzyme, right? And the way I like to remember that is this term B lining. If you've ever heard of the term B lining, it's essentially what it has to do is if you take a B and you take um, the beehive, the bee travels in a, the shortest path possible to reach that um, beehive, which is in contrast to the sporadic motion that it normally has. And that's known as beelining. The other way you can refer it, um, remember this is you can remember beelines like the comet tail artifacts and lung ultrasound, which since I'm here, I might as well talk, talk about it real quick. The um, beelines in lung ultrasound shows interlobular septal think thickening. So think of things like edema. Point being, beelining, keep it in a straight line, keep Parkinson's in a straight line, selegiline, resegiline, MAO-B, just, just put it all together, okay? It's just one big package. Now, there's this really high-yield side effect that you need to know from our inhibitors. Do you know what that is? So this is the tyramine overload, the hypertensive crisis. Now, can you explain to yourself really quickly what actually happens physiologically? So let's think about the mechanism of action here. First off, recall that tyramine is a monoamine. It's kind of in the name, tyramine, monoamine. And similar to how other monoamines accumulate in the presynaptic neuron because of the monoamine oxidase inhibition, so too does tyramine. And what that does when that tyramine uh, accumulates in the presynaptic neuron, what it does is it displaces other neurotransmitters, namely other monoamines, such as norepinephrine. And it actually primarily displaces norepinephrine. And what that'll do is it'll cause norepinephrine to go into the postsynaptic cleft now that it has been displaced by the tyramine that, again, was not being broken down. And so now you have all this norepinephrine in the postsynaptic cleft activating its receptors. What do you think is going to happen? Hypertension is going to happen. And where is tyramine typically found? So you probably said wine and cheeses, and you'd be correct. Um, some other places that you want to look out for, cured meats. And the reason for that is that they use nitrates, nitrites, and salt for preservation. You can also see tyramine in fermented soy products and overripe fruits. And lastly, you can also see tyramine in alcohol. And lastly, this is the last concept we're going to go over before we move on to scenarios. This is the serotonin syndrome. Yes, that's right. We're going to talk about that. Okay, here we go. So SSRIs, 
SNRIs, TCAs, atypical antidepressants, except bupropion. Nobody cares about that. Malinhibitors, except selective malinhibitors, because again, nobody cares about that. That only cares about dopamine. All have some role in increasing available serotonin. And fundamentally, you can think of serotonin syndrome as a serotonin toxicity. So if you have these drugs that I mentioned interacting with each other, you're going to have excess serotonin. Now, there are two other drugs apart from the ones that I mentioned that can also contribute to the cause of serotonin syndrome. Uh, the first one is tramadol, and do you know why? So you probably could recall that tramadol is a weak agonist of the mu opioid receptor, but in addition, and let's not forget this, it also has serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake abilities. So because it acts like an SNRI, it can also increase the available serotonin, thus contribute to serotonin syndrome. There is also one more drug, and that is dextromethorphan. And do you know why that is? So real quick, uh, dextromethorphan, what it does is it acts on the sigma opioid receptor. So it also has opioid activity. But what you may not know is that it also has 5-HT2 activity. Now, I couldn't find exact reasons why through my research. I mean, please let us know if you do. But one way that you can remember this is you can think about the name, dextromethorphan. It has the suffix thorphan. I mean, maybe that's not really a suffix. But what that helps me remember is that it helps me remember tryptophan. Thorphan, tryptophan kind of sounds very similar, which if you recall, tryptophan is the amino acid that builds into serotonin after a couple of enzymatic processes that honestly are not relevant for the purposes of board examinations. But what is important is the fact that serotonin is derived from tryptophan. And there is one more drug that is also known for contributing to the causes of serotonin syndrome. Do you know which drug I'm referring to? Okay, I'll give you a hint. It is an antibiotic. All right, so what I'm looking for is linazolid, and examiners love to go after this. See, linazolid has weak MAO inhibitor properties, and because of that, it can in conjunction with another drug like SSRIs contribute to serotonin syndrome. And just as a bonus real quick, um, if you want a quick review of linazolid, acts on the 50S subunit is bacteriostatic, has activity versus gram positives, MRSAs, and vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. And side effects include thrombocytopenia, optic neuropathy, and peripheral neuropathy. That's just a bonus for you. Now, what are the main symptoms of serotonin syndrome? So you have your fever, tachycardia, hypertension, agitation, diaphoresis. Those are kind of the basic symptoms, but there are two incredibly high-yield symptoms that you need to know. You know what those are? So you have diarrhea and clonus. Now recall from our discussion about serotonin where it acts. Serotonin is very much present in the gut, about 90 to 95%. So... And serotonin is known to enhance the motility of the gut. So if you have excess serotonin to toxic levels, enhancing gut motility, you basically get diarrhea. And then clonus. What is clonus? So clonus can be presented to you in a number of ways. Basically, it is a type of hyperreflexia, a severe type that's plus 4 out of 4 on DTRs. And it is defined as 
rhythmic involuntary contractions upon trigger of a reflex. Now, one really high-yield point with serotonin syndrome is to differentiate it from neuroleptic malignant syndrome. What is the key difference? There are actually multiple. So first, let's talk about the cause. So serotonin syndrome is caused by excess serotonin due to the drug-drug interactions, whereas NMS is caused by antipsychotics. Furthermore, the findings are different. Instead of diarrhea and clonus, you would have rigidity as well as elevated creatinine kinase and white blood cells. I'll spare additional details about NMS for our third episode on pharmacology. This episode is already going really long. Now, what is the treatment for serotonin syndrome? So you'd be correct in saying ciproheptidine. What is the mechanism of ciproheptidine? Antagonist activity uh, versus 5-HT1 and 5-HT2. But more important, I I think this is more important for step two rather than step one. Uh, Before you jump to ciproheptidine, you discontinue the medications, you give antihypertensives, you cool the patient, and then you give benzodiazepines. Probably not important for step one, but I thought I'd just put it in there for completeness sake. All right, congratulations, everybody. We are now moving on to these scenarios. As you can see, the pharmacology for the psych section, pretty dense, pretty involved, and that is why I decided to split the pharmacology into two sections. I mean, this section already is going pretty long, so let's try to wrap this up here with some scenarios. We'll be using some of the same ones from the first episode for simplicity, with some minor modifications. And the goal here is to demonstrate how examiners can go from multiple concepts from just one question. I'll keep the scenarios brief and simple to clarify some of the highest yield points. The rest of the information is honestly best repeated through Anki, Sketchy, or even re-listening to this episode. These scenarios won't cover everything. Again, the pharmacology was incredibly dense, so this is only a small taste. Consider this a warm-up or a checkpoint, if you will. Okay, first question. 45-year-old female presents to her primary care physician with difficulty sleeping for the past four months. Further questioning reveals her concerns about feeling guilty for mistakes she made in her prior relationship and a decreased ability to focus on work as a result. She no longer enjoys ice skating and hasn't gone to the rink since her symptoms began. Although she reports feeling sad, she denies any suicidal thoughts, but admits to not eating as much or as frequently as she used to. Physical exam is unremarkable. You prescribe her acetalopram. Two weeks later, she continues to feel the symptoms and is requesting for a change in her medication regimen. What will you do? So the correct answer here is to wait it out for a few more weeks. Again, SSRIs take time to act. So if they're coming in two weeks later saying, hey doc, the medications aren't working, again, you just gotta wait a little bit longer. So... Let's do that. You waited a few weeks, and things still don't work. What do you do next? So you can do one of a number of things, and honestly here it's going to be the best possible um, answer on the multiple choice. So one of the answer choices you might get would be switch to a different SSRI. Um, Usually it might not be that. Usually instead they're going to have you Uh, change the SSRI to an SNRI. 
All right, good work. Now, six months later, this patient comes to urgent care with flu-like symptoms. Patient mentions that she's been hiking more frequently and likes to walk her dog alongside her in these hikes. She's had the dog for about a year now. Medications include atorvastatin, levothyroxine, omeprazole, and over-the-counter NSAIDs, alongside fluoxetine for her depression, which she recently stopped taking because she, quote-unquote, she feels great. She denies any rashes, itching, or fatigue. What is the most likely reason for her symptoms? Okay, yeah, this is my feeble attempt at a risk factor question, and it's probably easy given the context of this episode, but... If you guessed that the answer is the discontinuation of the SSRI is what caused the flu-like symptoms, you'd be correct. Okay, now let's flip this question into the alternate universe where instead of giving an SSRI that worked, you gave an SSRI which caused the patient to become uncontrollably talkative. And then further questioning reveals that she was spending money, um, needless amounts of money on refrigerator magnets and posters due to a belief that she is the best magnet and poster collector in all of North America. What would be going on here? Right, so in this alternate universe, what you essentially did is that you induced mania using an SSRI. And what this is indicative of is an underlying history of bipolar disorder. And this is why when prescribing antidepressants, it's really important to Go over those dig fast criteria with the patients just to rule out bipolar disorder because you definitely do not want to induce mania in these patients. All right, next question. A 75-year-old female presenting to her psychiatrist to establish care. She says she lost her husband of 55 years due to a traumatic car accident eight months ago and feels guilty rushing him out of the house as he was getting late, late for work rather than encouraging him to slow down and arrive late in a safe manner. She reports that she wants to quote-unquote disappear without a trace and also ha- and also mentions having haunting visions of him around the house which prevent her from sleeping. She also admits to a loss of appetite, often eating one small meal a day. Physical exam is only remarkable for an 18-pound weight loss since the death of her husband. What is the most appropriate medication to start this patient on? So you would want to start this patient on mirtazapine. And what'll often happen, and I I know maybe you've got this right within the context of this podcast, but sometimes what happens is that you see a question, you see uh, symptoms of depression, and then you're thinking, oh yeah, SSRIs. But you also want to keep in mind the atypicals. In this case, the patient has a loss of appetite uh, that caused an 18-pound weight loss, um, also mentioned difficulty sleeping, and so mirtazapine, I almost called it mirtazapone, mirtazapine can uh, promote that sedation as well as promoting that increase in appetite, which can then result in a favorable weight gain. Okay, but what if the patient presented, um, instead of loss of sleep and appetite, the patient said, oh, since my husband passed away, I've been trying to ease the stress by smoking. What would you instead prescribe? So here you would prescribe bupropion because bupropion is great for smoking cessation. And what important history questions would you ask before prescribing bupropion? So you would want to rule out an eating disorder, especially bulimia, and you would also want to rule out a history of epilepsy. Recall that uh, bupropion can lower the seizure threshold, so this is why you want to ask these questions. 
Okay, next scenario, you got a 25-year-old male brought in by ambulance to the emergency department after he was found by his mom unresponsive on the floor of his home. The patient's past medical history is significant for major depressive disorder. Medical history is otherwise unremarkable. EKG reveals prolonged QRS complexes. What is the mechanism of action of the medication that he took? Yeah, sometimes they're going to do this. They're going to have those two-step, three-step questions. Um, in this case, you see the prolonged QRS complexes. You see that history of major depressive disorder. So it's safe to assume that this patient took a tricyclic antidepressant. And the mechanism of that is serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibition. And how would you treat this overdose? Sodium bicarbonate. Okay, good. So now the patient is stable, eight weeks pass, and the patient is now describing difficulty working. He says he is fearful of what his boss will say about his next quarterly progress report, given that his most recent one wasn't well received by his boss. Consequently, he has been stress eating and sleeping an extra three hours per night. When asked if he is satisfied with life outside of work, he shares that his sister recently gave birth to a girl and that he is excited to be an uncle. Given his current symptoms, you make a change in his medication regimen. Knowing this change, what lifestyle modifications would you encourage the patient to be mindful of? So you would caution the patient about their consumption of alcohol as well as cheeses or really any foods high in tyramine. And the reason you're doing that is because in this question stem, based off the symptoms, you would have prescribed this patient a MAO inhibitor. So note from the question stem, stress eating, stress sleeping, uh, this would be your hypersomnia, hyperphagia, or hyperphagia, hypersomnia. And then notice how he's fearful about what his boss will say. That's the sensitivity to rejection. And then he's talking about how he's going to become an uncle, but he's pretty happy about that. That's kind of that mood reactivity. So appropriately responding to you know happy stimuli when they when they come up now as far as switching one antidepressant for another to prevent serotonin syndrome you would have to do a washout period which would involve tapering uh, the details behind how to taper it and not the exact dosaging i mean that's that's not really important for step one but if you were thinking that in the back of your head oh what about serotonin syndrome that's a that's a good thing to think about now another question uh, what is the mechanism of action of the drug that you gave him? And, and be specific for this one. So when I say be specific, I'm referring to the type of MAO inhibitor that's being inhibited. And in this case, um, it is implied that we're giving the patient a MAO-A inhibitor. Recall that the B lines, Resedja line, Selegia line, keep Parkinson's straight, keep it in a line. That's for Parkinson's. That's for dopamine increase. That's not what we're doing here. If we are giving a MAO inhibitor for the treatment of depression, then we're giving a MAO-A inhibitor, and that's because of its additional effects on norepinephrine and serotonin. And do you remember the names of those drugs? Right, isocarboxazid, tranocypramine, and phenelzine. And just to hammer this point, and I'm only mentioning this because I got confused and likely some other students got confused, phenelzine, MAO inhibitor, not the same as phenylephrine, which is an alpha agonist, which is not the same as flufenazine, which is a first-generation antipsychotic, which acts as a D2 antagonist.
Okay, last scenario. We got a 22-year-old woman, past medical history, generalized anxiety disorder, controlled by fluoxetine, is brought to the emergency department by her boyfriend with feelings of restlessness. Her boyfriend explains that her girlfriend has her LSAT in a week, so he gave some of his duloxetine to ease her nerves. Her blood pressure is 140 over 90, heart rate 100, respiratory rate 15, DTRs 3 plus on the bilateral tendons. What is the most likely diagnosis? Yeah, so this is that serotonin syndrome. Here we have an interaction with fluoxetine and duloxetine, both of which have some elements of serotonin reuptake inhibition, so that would cause a serotonin toxicity. In this example, we had a DTR of 3+. plus. Uh, sometimes you can see serotonin syndrome uh, with a 3+, plus instead of a 4+, plus. but if it was a 4+, plus, what would you expect to see? Clonus, so that's that rhythmic involuntary contractions. And they don't often show this in the question sim just because it can be a dead giveaway. But if you were to expect a GI symptom, a specific GI symptom, what would you expect in the setting of serotonin syndrome? Diarrhea, right? And what is the physiologic explanation for diarrhea in the setting of serotonin syndrome? So that would be due to the synthesis of serotonin from the enterochromaffin cells of the intestine. Okay, from here on out, no more questions. I just wanted to dedicate this last section to clarifications from the previous episode that I made about mood disorders. So consider this bonus content. So recall from our last episode, we talked about depression and then how it manifests. What I forgot to talk about was how depression manifests in relation to sleep. And so what you would expect to find are a decrease in slow wave sleep, a decrease in REM latency, REM being rapid eye movement, and an increase in the amount of REM sleep. In other words, if you were to kind of put that together, a patient who has depression is going to spend more time in REM sleep than they are in slow wave sleep. So now a quick note about slow wave sleep. It's also known as the delta wave stage, also known as non-rapid eye movement stage three. And research shows that this stage of sleep is actually the most important for our energy. So if we have less delta sleep, less slow wave sleep, naturally we'll have more fatigue. And this would explain that symptom of uh, patients with depression. They're asleep for 12 to 14 hours, but their quality of sleep just does not match with you know, what somebody without depression has because they are still feeling fatigue after 12 hours. And that's because they're just not having as much slow wave sleep. They're having more REM sleep. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I apologize for missing this. This is actually pretty high yield. Regarding the Siggy cap symptoms, I mentioned that the P stands for psychomotor retardation, but it can also stand for psychomotor agitation. So this would look as, this would look like restlessness and fidgeting. Another bonus, if you have a question stem involving a pediatric patient and they need treatment for depression, you would give them an SSRI first and foremost, but there's one specific one that really works, and that is fluoxetine. And lastly, real quick, let's talk about electroconvulsive therapy, aka ECT. This is a treatment indicated for treatment refractory depression, aka they've tried a bunch of other medications, but it really doesn't work. Uh, that's one indication for ACT. The other indication is if this patient is in desperate need of immediate treatment. 
So we're looking at uh, symptoms of severe suicidality, psychosis, malnutrition. You're going to need to get that ECT in right away. And this is particularly useful for the elderly population. See, a lot of the drugs we talked about have antihistamine, anticholinergic properties that are really not favorable for the elderly, so ECT can be really good for them. And regarding another special patient population, we are talking about pregnant patients. So ECT is safe in pregnancy. Um, that's not to say that you can't use pharmacological treatments. You can. Research mostly shows limited evidence of teratogenicity for a lot of the antidepressants. But due to the wide range of side effect profiles and the fact that the patient is pregnant, you probably want to reduce the side effect profile. So sometimes in this population, ECT is the better move. Okay, let's do a really quick recap. So we have SSRIs, which inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, which is derived from tryptophan, also referred to as a monoamine, synthesized in the raffine nucleus, also the enterochromaffin cells of the intestine, and the names of the drugs, citalopram, escitalopram, fluoxetine, paroxetine, fluvoxamine, and sertraline, they take about one to two months to work. Okay, and you can induce bipolar with them, so be careful, and also taper them off because they take a long time to come on. They also take a long time to come off. Then we have SNRIs. So we got norepinephrine, which is derived from tyrosine, which goes into L-DOPA, dopamine, norepinephrine, and remember the mnemonic TLDN. Recall that dopamine and norepinephrine, they're both monoamines, Norepinephrine is synthesized in the adrenal medulla. Names of the drugs, venlafaxine, duloxetine. Remember, do not confuse with fluoxetine. Can also treat neuropathy and fibromyalgia. See, SSRIs cannot do that. SNRIs can. And don't forget about the hypertension side effect because of the alpha-1 and um, the alpha-1 agonism. Then you have your TCAs. Long, long, long list of stuff. They act just like SNRIs. But you also want to be aware of their anticholinergic, antihistaminic, antiadrenergic effects. The names of the drugs, amitriptyline, imipramine, clomipramine, these are your tertiary. And then your secondary are norotriptyline and disipramine. Uh, recall that imipramine is great for enuresis, clomipramine for OCD, doxepin is the most antihistaminic, disipramine is the least antihistaminic. And don't forget about the three C's, cardiotoxicity, convulsions, and coma. And then lastly, orthostatic hypotension, which is confusing because it acts like an SNRI, so it should have more norepinephrine. But despite this, it has more prominent antiadrenergic effects. Again, this is a confusing one, but that's something you have to know. Then you have your atypical antidepressants, which do not treat atypical depression. You have bupropion, great for smoking cessation, aids in weight loss, no sexual dysfunction, can lower the seizure threshold, so be mindful of that. Trazodone, which can cause priapism and sedation. Mirtazapine, which can cause increased appetite, resulting in weight gain, uh, plus sedation. Remember, trazodone, mirtazapine, the ZZZ mnemonic. Your MAO inhibitors to treat atypical depression. Uh, they inhibit the breakdown of monoamines, such as norepinephrine, do dopamine, and serotonin. And then those are further divided into non-selective and selective MAO inhibitors. So your non-selective are isocarboxazide, tranalcipramine, phenelzine, inhibiting both MAO A and MAO B, thus increasing the availability of norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Then you have your selective, selegiline, resegiline, or selegiline, resegiline, however you pronounce it, it doesn't matter. These are your MAO B inhibitors, so they only increase the levels of dopamine, great for our treatment of Parkinson's. Side effect profile being detyramine, hypertensive crisis. And then we talked about serotonin syndrome, interactions between multiple drugs. 
which includes other drugs such as tramadol, dextromethorphan, and linazolid. Don't forget about the fever, hypertension, tachycardia, agitation, diaphoresis. Those are kind of your overarching symptoms, but your high-yield ones, diarrhea, clonus, treated primarily by ciproheptidine, as well as other conservative measures. And final stretch, patients with depression spend more time in REM sleep, less time in slow-wave sleep. The SIGI caps, the P, can also be psychomotor agitation. For pediatrics, fluoxetine is your go-to, and ECT is indicated for treatment refractory depression, as well as people who need immediate treatment for folks such as those who are experiencing severe suicidality, psychosis, malnutrition, and ECT is safe in the elderly as well as the pregnant population. That was a lot. Good job, everyone. And thank you for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. On the next episode, I'll be continuing the segment to talk about pharmacology relevant to bipolar disorder. This will only be mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. It is still pretty dense, but I promise it won't be anything like this one. Good luck studying, and remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down. <laughs>